Well, good morning. Uh, We continue our series in the Gospel of John by turning to chapter 8, and we're going to be starting from verse 12. And this is what it says. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written about the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Now these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Amen. So the passage that we have here before us presents Jesus returning back and returning, as it were, to have another part of the conversation with the Pharisees, a conversation that started the previous day in the previous chapter, chapter 7, which means that the themes of confusion, rejection, and belief that I mentioned the last time we looked at it hold true here again. As Jesus speaks, these three reactions are again noted on the parts of the hearers. The context, too, is the same. As verse 2 in our chapter told us earlier, we find that Jesus is once again speaking in the temple. As you see in verse 20, he's specifically speaking in or possibly opposite the treasury, which was located in a section known as the court of women. Now, Uh, That should be understood as a place that was not restricted just to women. Uh, This is a place where everybody, including women, were permitted to go. So Jesus is teaching in an area where everyone can hear him. That's the point. Uh, Having been told that all the people are looking to hear him, we see that he makes it possible. He is not separated away. He hasn't gone to one of the more exclusive areas, maybe for, for the learned or more important people. 
He speaks in a place where all have access, with the intention that all would have the chance to hear and respond, whether it is in the confusion that we see throughout the passage, the rejection of verse 13, or the belief recorded in verse 30. The chapter also begins by telling us uh, that it takes place the day following the previous encounter in chapter 7. As such, these events take place immediately following the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is what provides for the perfect illustration when Jesus reveals that he is the light of the world. In the previous chapter, if you remember, Jesus used the water ceremonies that were being conducted during the Feast of Tabernacles to reveal something about himself. He uses it as the backdrop, as the one who then claims to be able to provide living water. Remember, each morning of the week-long festival, the people would uh, remember the provision of God uh, who provided their ancestors the water in the desert. And so for seven days, they celebrate with with a water ritual. And on the eighth day, when the water had ceased, Jesus stands up and very publicly and very loudly declares that he, as God, will provide again. Only this time, it will be in living water. Water that transforms lives. Water that then flows through his people to change the lives of those around him. So the lives that were once dry, lifeless, can be transformed with an abundance of life. So that was the focus of the feast every morning. Uh, But on the evening, they celebrated light. On the first night of the feast, there was what we call the the, the great illumination of the temple ceremony. Uh, It happened to take place in the court of women. It takes place exactly where Jesus stands and speaks now. Now, The court, to be fair, was an ideal spot for the ceremony. There were these vast galleries on either side where the spectators could sit. Uh, It was ideal. In the center of the court stood the giant lamps. Uh, possibly a menorah, and they were huge. Uh, They were said to be about 75 feet tall. That would be about 23 meters. If you're sitting there still wondering what does that look like, that would be the equivalent of about seven stories. When I say they're huge, I'm not uh, underestimating it. They were huge. And what would happen is these four great oil lamps, they would be lit And because of their size, they were said to provide such a blaze that the whole of Jerusalem was lit up. That's the the idea of it. And all night long, until the cock crowed the next morning, uh, those who were described as the greatest, wisest, and holiest of men danced before the Lord. Uh, And they sang psalms of joy and praise while the people joined in and watched It was a celebration. It was a celebration that was so brilliant that it was nicknamed the light of the world. Almost every night, the great light would illuminate the city until it is extinguished on that eighth day. And so it is in that same court, the day after the lights have been extinguished, in the gloom, with the memory of those great burning lamps, fresh in the mind, that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The very powerful statement made all the more so when we understand why they had been lighting and celebrating these lamps in the first place. You see, God himself 
in the Old Testament is very often equated with light. Um, Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? It is with the light of God that we are able to walk unencumbered through the debris of life. Uh, Job makes that clear in Job 29, verse 3. It is by his light that I am able to walk through the darkness. The rescuing nature of that light is attested to all the way through Scripture. I think of uh, Micah, chapter 7, verse 8, when it says, When I am sat in the darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Now, in addition to the general association, as it were, between God and light, there were two specific historical moments that were very much taken up in the celebrations of the people in that court where Jesus stands. The first uh, is in the context of the feast celebrating the provision of God in the Exodus. The Feast of Tabernacles was originally set up because it was a celebration of what God had done for their ancestors while they wandered in the desert. Uh, The water that I'd spoken about previously is again that celebration of what God had done in the desert. So just as they remembered Numbers 20 when the rock was opened up and the water provided, so too the symbolism for the light is found in Exodus. When we have that pillar of light, that pillar of fire that guides the people through the night. You know, when they, when they left the, the, the cloud by day, the fire by night, and they followed it. Now, what's really important for us to remember at this point is that the pillar of light was not just sent by God, it was God. That was God himself leading the people. Now, there's many texts that attest to that. For example, um, Exodus 13:21, And Yahweh went before them in the day in a pillar of cloud in order to lead them along the way. And he was there in the night in the pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and night. The one who had redeemed the people, who had rescued them from Egypt, now leads them to the promised land. God himself appearing as light before the people. That's one of the things that was being celebrated in the great lighting by the people in their feast. We need to understand that. Because when Jesus then stands in that same place and says, I am the light, he is claiming to have been the one who rescued their ancestors, the one who led those people, the one who was actually being celebrated in the feast. However, the feast also celebrated another occasion, another historical moment, when God was associated with light. In 1 Kings 8 verse 2, we're told about the the, the dedication of Solomon's temple, the first temple. And Solomon coincided the dedication to be with this particular feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is relevant because in uh, verse 11 of that chapter, the glory of Yahweh descends and fills the temple. And the lighting of the lamps in the temple, hundreds of years later, referred, yes, to the pillar of fire in the desert, but it also referred to the glory of God when it entered the temple. God, who was willing to be seen to dwell amongst his people right there. 
You know, that uh, glory gets given a name later on, the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory. Uh, Shekinah uh, isn't a word that's used uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, in, in, it is a Hebrew word, but it comes from the, the Hebrew word to dwell. It's not just that it was bright. It's not just that it was light. It was God willing to dwell with human beings. And again, with Jesus standing there and claiming to be the light, standing in the temple where that glory had descended, the very place where the people had been celebrating that light. Jesus is saying, I am God. So these are the two historical aspects uh, to the celebration, the two elements that remember God, the great I am, as the light, the one who redeems them and rescues them and brings them home, the light that dwells in their midst, who rescues people, who enters into relationship with them so they could be said to have gone from darkness to the light. And Jesus stands in that place of celebration, the sight of remembrance, and says, that is who I am. It is also quite poignant when we remember that the people had lost the light. These giant lamps are lit precisely because they were in darkness. The glory no longer filled the temple. The people look forward to a time when maybe God would return in such a way. Uh, To be fair, they've got lots of promises that God will return as the light of the people. Uh, particularly in books like Isaiah, I think of Isaiah uh, 42, verse 16, uh, and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know in paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things that I will do. I will not forsake them. The people in their feast, then, are not just looking back at God as light, not just mindful of former glory, as part of their feast, they cast their eye to the future as well. They look forward to a time when God would once again dwell with his people, once again elevate his people as the light to the nations. And indeed, the return of the glory to the temple was specifically anticipated through texts like uh, Zechariah 6, where the light referred to the arrival of the Messiah. And so as the people celebrated their past, they looked forward to their future. And so as Jesus stands in the temple, as he stands in the court of the woman, the day after the feast, well, the great lights are extinguished and how dark it must have appeared, (laughs) following their brilliance. How painful a reminder of their current plight their need for the light to return. And he stands there and says, I am here. I am the light of the world. I can be equated with the pillar of fire in the desert, the glory that had filled this temple. I am the promised Messiah. I am the messianic light to come. Here I am. Praise God. And so, having made that connection, it is appropriate that we think of light and how light is a good description of Jesus Christ. Uh, Having made this claim that he is God, having been the God who has intervened in the lives of their ancestors, light is a particularly apposite description. Uh, 
You see, it's a claim that he makes that matches what he does and what he is. You see, Jesus as the light of the world isn't like a new thing. It's not that Jesus simply used this occasion. The Gospels are filled with allusions to Jesus being the light. In fact, in this Gospel, in John's Gospel, we have Jesus as the light as, opening as, the, as early as the opening chapter. In that chapter, there were two aspects that John pulls out about light that really helps us understand who Jesus is. And in our time, I'll just briefly consider the two of them. In John chapter 1, verse 4, there is a link between light and life. Just as we have here in our chapter, in verse 12, it says this, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There is a link between light and life. Now, we all know that if there was uh, no sunshine, there would be no life. Without it, uh, life would not survive very long on earth. The point of that is that as vital as sunlight is for the physical life, Jesus is saying so too, the light of the Son of God is vital for spiritual life. Now, Jesus doesn't say he is a light. A means of life amongst others. He is absolutely clear. He is the light. And without him, without that light, there is no other option other than darkness. He doesn't say, I'm the light, but you can have a lesser light. <laughs> without him, there is no light. And when we're thinking of light and life together, that means that there is no eternal life without him. There is no opportunity to really live here as the transformed people of God without that light. He's not just the creator of physical life. He is the provider of spiritual life because he is life itself. That's how he's able to say later on in the gospel in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's why in 1 John chapter 5.12, it declares, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So, of our three options in responding to the truth, let's not have any confusion. <laughs> Instead, rejection and belief are your choices right now. He is the only means for life. You get to choose darkness or to believe to have the light of life in your life now. Uh, again, it's not just simply about what happens to us at a distant point in the future, but our lives now being transformed to have that light and life within us now. Uh, but there is, of course, another connection uh, that John makes between Jesus being light uh, and what that means. I mean, because he says that light provides illumination. Uh, whenever you look up light in the dictionary, uh, usually the very first thing that is there, the very first definition, is that light is required to make vision possible. Light is not an optional extra if you wish to see. Without light, there is no sight. 
And so again, this connection is made from the opening chapter of John's Gospel. The arrival of Jesus Christ is equated with everybody having the opportunity to see. It's a theme that continues throughout the Gospel, repeated regularly. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 46, in this Gospel, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. So as well, sorry, as, as, as well as bringing life, he brings the ability to see. It is an integral part of what the Messiah was prophesied to be all about. When you, again, you go back to Isaiah, one of the key themes of the Messiah is that he brings sight to those who cannot see. People who are spiritually blind, having encountered Jesus, would be able to see. It's incredible. That each and every one of us sitting here just now would be able to see who we are, where we come from, why we are here, and where we are going because we've encountered Jesus Christ. As Jesus says in John 12, 35, he who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. Well, brothers and sisters, as one who can say, I was once blind, but now I see, I know who I am. I am a redeemed child of God. I know why I'm here. I am to love God and to be loved by God, to give him all the glory, to see lives that are in darkness being affected by the light. But most glorious of all, I know where I am going. I have a wonderful assurance. Because as it says in Isaiah 60 verse 19, one day I will be in glory and so the sun shall no longer be your light by day nor your brightness will be found in the moon for light. But Yahweh will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Wow. Life and light. So what's our role in all of this? You see, if this is where we're going, if glory is where we're going, what is our role now? If Jesus, the light of the world, shines in your life, bringing life, bringing vision to your eyes, what does it mean now before we get there? You see, before we enter glory, it is important to remember that we are touched by that light now. For we, in turn, are to provide light in a dark world. That's why Jesus, in turn, says in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. The people that he has put his light into, us, we get to become the light of the world. He goes on in verse 16 of Matthew 5 to say, so let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The light that he gives us, we couldn't possibly make it for ourselves. The light that is him, Jesus Christ, in us. It means that we can show that light all around us. Through the things that we do, we should be pointing to God and giving him glory. We should compel praise from the lips of those who would have rejected God. Because of the light that lives in us. I think it's interesting that Jesus associates light with the visible things, the visible evidence of the things that we can and should do. Uh, what we do is a powerful witness of who we are. 
And so whilst I say that we should all be quick to give voice to the things that God has done, it is also incredibly effective to show in what we do who God is. The way I think about that, the way that it sticks in my head anyway, is to think of the comparative speed of sound and light. Okay, this is maybe just for me, but, but bear, bear with me. Um, it, the sun is, is, is almost five million kilometers away, and it means that the light travels from the sun to us, and it takes about eight minutes to get here. Uh, if the sun was gone, it would take us about eight minutes to realize. <laughs> if, however, by comparison, uh, my voice were to carry from the sun to here, and I know that's not possible, but bear with me. Uh, but if my voice was to carry from the sun to us because of the speed of sound, instead of eight minutes, it would take me 18 years to arrive. <laughs> I think I find that a really effective way of remembering. You know, what we say, you know, that can take a very long time to get through, but what we do, who we are, what people can see, that has a much more immediate effect. And so when Jesus is saying that we need to be the light, and therefore what you do should make others give glory to God, that's what he's saying. It doesn't mean we get off the hook from having to say things. But what we do, who we are, how we act, is the bedrock for anything we'd want to say. It points effectively to who we really serve. Now, under normal circumstances, I'd pray just finish the sermon about there. Uh, you know, kind of on a high note, you know. Jesus, the, the, the light, the light of the world who brings life and vision. And for those who have that light, who have that life, who can see, in turn, carrying that light into the darkness. What a glorious message that is. And under normal circumstances, I would finish there. It would be the end of the sermon. However, at a time of particular darkness in this world, we are in need, more than ever maybe in our lifetimes before, to be that light in this world. So, the coronavirus is the news story. It's dominating everything at the moment. It affects how we conduct ourselves in here. Now, as someone at particular risk, uh, it's not something I can easily ignore, nor should I. However, one of the reasons I believe that it causes such distress is that it has effectively reminded the world of the fragility of life. Every headline, each reported case, the rising death toll reminds us of our own mortality. Coronavirus, even if you're destined to be one of the mild cases, reminds us that we are ultimately, all of us, going to die. It's a very compelling story. Uh, no wonder we're caught up with it, because death takes center stage. We are reminded that from the moment we are born, we are doomed to die. Now, as a Christian... When I look at the news and I read about the virus or the bushfires in Australia or the floods in England or the plague of locusts sweeping East Africa, I am reminded we live in a broken world. Each and every one of us are part of a dying people. 
And we're part of a people that need the light of Christ. We need to hear and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, the one who can provide life and light, the one who can renew and save. We need to allow him to transform us so we can be that light on the hill that he describes, the ones pointing to our Savior as death lurks in their shadows. Now, that's not a new thing. It's the truth of each and every day through all the ages. But it has perhaps re-emerged to be on the minds of those around us. More than ever, the people around us need to see the light of Christ. More than ever, the people around us need to see the people of Christ filled with the light in a world consumed by utter darkness. We need him more than ever before. And our part is not to start a light. Our part is not to make a light. Our part is to be open to him, to allow him to transform us and show his light through us. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in a world of darkness, uh, as a people who are uh, aware, perhaps just now, of their own mortality, uh, we thank you that you are the one who can give life. You are the one who provides life, the one who is the light. Uh, We thank you we don't have to make that light ourselves, that we don't have to frantically try and be the light. Lord, we just simply ask that you would transform us, that we would take this opportunity to really be mindful of you and to to really dedicate our lives to you, to be transformed by you so that the world would see you. Uh, The people who need you, the people who do not know you, would see the light of our lives pointing to you so that you would be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' wonderful and precious name, amen.